Hi, everyone. Welcome to Building Vesser. This is the first episode of our new podcast, and we are so excited. I'm Victory Palmisano. I'm Ann Houck. I'm Mike McGarg. So we've been working on this project for a couple of years now, and we are coming out of stealth mode, and we are very excited to share this project with you. So I want to start by asking uh, our beloved Mike, uh, who, who the seed of the idea for World of Vesser sprang from his mind, uh, and since it has been a team effort to realize the world and see it come to life, but I, I want to start by asking Mike, uh, can you tell us where World of Vesser came from? What what inspired the initial idea? Uh, <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of stuff in a blender. I wish there was like a clear, like there was this one moment and I just knew, but there, there was not. Uh, it, it's a couple of things. One, um, I'm a TTRPG nerd. I like to play tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. And I love playing them. Um, and the very first game I was involved in, uh, in the in the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, I technically played in high school, but started playing for real as an adult. Uh, I had like a real clear vision for what I wanted my character to do, and there was nothing in um, source books that fulfilled that vision. So, with you know uh, another GM's permission and. Uh, I decided I was going to expand the setting we were playing in to include this thing I thought was neat and ended up writing like a 300-page source book uh, about this this one place in this world. And I really, really enjoyed that process. It was actually the most fun I've ever had writing, whether that's for books or uh you know, writing screenplays or whatever. The most fun I've ever had was writing that TTRPG source book. And I was like, I want to create my own TTRPG world. And uh, this is at the same time I'd been thinking about, I wanted to write a novel, but instead of using like a traditional story structure, at key points in the plot, I wanted to roll dice to determine whether the protagonist was uh, successful or not. Um, because I feel like there's something more real about the random chance with dice and storytelling than when we follow these arcs where it's like, well, no, the the we've got to be triumphant right now because we're early in Act Two. We've we've got to wait till Act Two B to really get down in the doldrums and and hope is lost. Really, in Act, you know what I mean? Like the the dice make it more like our lives. Our lives aren't linear like that. So I'd been just kind of brainstorming about what that could look like for me to write my own setting to like use playing in my living room and not like a published thing, just the table. If somebody was playing a game I was running, it would be set in this world. And at the same time that was going on, I had, um, I'd recently done a bunch of work with Marvel on the MCU and really enjoyed seeing what it was like to integrate like a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows into the same continuity at the same time. And I'd been playing at a table that was a table of tables, playing a D&D &D game that had, you know, dozens and dozens of people. 
and you know a bunch of GMs all playing games in the same continuity. That was really fun. And I thought, well, what if you could have tables and tables and tables in the same continuity, but then that continuity was like in the same continuity as a book. The you know a book series and the game are same continuity. Well, although if you did that, could you also do a TV show? If you did that, could you also could you do like lots of media all telling stories in the same world, but that aren't like you're not making a novelization of the movie or you're not making a TV version of the game arc. It's all unique stories. They're just interconnected. They're happening in the same world. Um, and as I kind of thought about that, uh, anyone who knows me will not be surprised that uh, I care a lot about the quality of the world and the quality of human life within the world. And the way we think so deeply impacts how we behave, and how we behave is what creates the conditions under which everyone lives. Uh, so I was thinking about uh, how propaganda is used in all kinds of different societies to uh, convince people um, to persist and, and, and continue systems that maybe hurt them more than help them or could help them more and don't. I thought about intersectional notions of identity and marginalization and oppression. Um, and I was kind of pulling on those threads. And then I was also thinking about, like, as we learn more about uh, ways in which people are marginalized, that can actually kind of start to tear us apart because there's such justifiable anger about the way ways that all kinds of people are treated by society. Um, so, you know, how did we create a storytelling setting that, like, really acknowledge the ways that people are different without erasing the fact that there's also a commonality to the human experience. But then if you tell those stories, it can trigger people, right? Because it's too close to home. Like if I, if you tell a story that in, involves sexual violence, on the one hand, that can help people understand the problem of sexual violence, but that can also really, really, really hurt people who've experienced sexual violence. It could be catharsis. It could deepen their trauma. So I was like, well, we need a parable. We need metaphor to give us a step of distance to explore these issues of propaganda and marginalization and oppression and privilege and identity. So we need people who aren't on earth and we need people who aren't humans. But if we're going to have people who aren't humans, they shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be able to make them by putting foam on a human person. Right, because to me, it's a it's a pet peeve of mine, but that just pulls me out of my suspension of disbelief. So that's all that kind of stuff had just been in the hopper for a couple of years, and uh, I was uh, making myself coffee one morning, and I had this image of a uh, young child. Uh, reaching out toward her mother, reaching her hand out toward her mother. And like basically the, uh, a cinematic shot of the back of the child's hand. And that's what you see, you know, opening, opening image in Save the Cat terms. And as the depth of focus clicks on the out of the outstretched hand is a mother reaching back toward the child. The mother is being uh, restrained by other people on the street, not by, you know, police or military, anything like that, just people on the street. And then the child is being taken away by 
one person, obviously in some kind of official garb, but not like a police force. Uh, and I, I realized that as they did this, this child, uh, her hand caught on fire, but her hand wasn't burning her. It wasn't hurting her, but the air around her was combusting and then her arm, and then it burned the person who was trying to take her. And she ran back and embraced her mom. But as she started to cry, she started to catch fire again and her mom's clothes caught on fire. And I realized uh, that she had access to a source of magic she could not control, a magic that was part of physics, uh, that through mechanisms she and no one in the world understood, energy could be brought into reality from somewhere else through a particular kind of person, an emergent person, and uh, someone from whom power emerges. And... Uh, from there, I started to figure out, well, what does this world look like? What does it mean for there to be people who are kind of born magical, but they don't know it? At some point, they start to experience uh, what we now call imminent ability. Uh, that could happen when they're very young. It could happen when they're very old. It could happen somewhere in between. And uh, what would that mean if suddenly you had a power that you couldn't really control? How would society respond to that? what social structures would form around it. And oh, by the way, it wouldn't just be people. All forms of life would have imminent potential. They would maybe become um, magical. And so how would that affect ecosystems? And how would that affect uh, a natural selection and evolution? And how would that affect, well, if this is physics, how would it affect plate tectonics? How would it affect star formation? Um, how would it affect the Big Bang? So, uh, you know, that's kind of where it all started and then trying to pull that ball of yarn apart until it made a cohesive world, uh, world of Esther. That's what we've been working on. So is that, what? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I kind of rambled there. <laughs> no, this, this, this was the question that I asked you and I very distinctly remember the very first day that you pitched me the idea and you shared I'm looking at that document right now. Yeah. Uh and you know I'm a real uh character driven story type of gal and so I was like tracking with you with every with everything and then you shared the story about the little girl and her mom and I was like sucked in as I just was once again as if I'd never heard it before. Um it gives me chills. But yeah, that that's a wonderful explanation. Thank you for for sharing that. Uh, I I would love to ask this question to both you and Anne. Actually, uh, as a team, like I said, we've spent the last over the last year really working on on your idea and fleshing it out, and actually making every element of the world real. Uh, so I'd love to just hear from from both of you. Maybe Anne, we can we can start with you because you you came into this project and you got the the pitch and and you are the person that created visuals uh, for the ideas that were in Mike's head. Um, and and we also have another person in our world building team that's not here today, Alex. So we might reference Alex as well in this conversation. Um, who was our game designer and, and architect. But yeah, I would just invite you, Anne, to to share a little bit about your experience and um, 
Mike, pop in if you feel like you want to add a little <laughs> color. Yeah, so coming into this project was something very different than a, a lot of the things I'd worked on before. And I remember when we were first talking about maybe working together on this, um, the the night after we had had our call, I was like staying up thinking of ideas because it just kept like spinning and spinning and spinning in my head of like ev everything we talked about and the details about the world and, and just the fact that like Victory, you were so honed in on like the, the character driven focus and all of that. And Mike's over here with like the astrophysics of the world. Like it, it's just a really, really cool combination. And I, I think, I mean, com coming onto the team has been the exact same way and something that has been so cool. And, and Mike, jump in here too, if you, if you would like to as well, is there's been a little bit of a process of like, we'll, we'll talk in the world building team about our ideas and what things look like. And I'll go and I'll work on drawings and stuff and we'll almost start learning things accidentally about the world as, as we make stuff and have conversations out of that. So it's been really cool um, to, to work on a project where it feels like the world's almost there and we're just uncovering it and, and kind of exploring, you know, what does Vesser look like? Um, little things like what do door handles in Vesser look like? Because it's or got doors entire... themselves. Yeah. Are there doors? <laughs> that, There's that so much actually... physiological variation among the species of the Vahashath, uh, the people of Hesh, that we can't use any base architectural assumptions from Earth. Yeah. I mean, I that was actually a conversation I think we had the first call. And that was something that stuck with me is like, what do door handles look like? Like silly little details that once you start thinking of a civilization that completely sprung up differently than our own, how much changes. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's that's been something very interesting exploring, you know, with a society that's made up of three different species, uh, how does that affect clothing, architecture, even even just how they interact? Because there's there's this medley of of different cultures that are coming together, kind of like we have on Earth, but in a very different manner because it is three entirely different species. It's a fun, uh, you know, the world of Esther. It's fine. It's cool. Whatever. What I get really excited about is. Uh the methodology by which we build the world of Vesser, like how mm -hmm. do we create an environment that uh, really lets everyone working on it thrive, uh, which is just the right thing to do. And also when people are thriving and empowered in their job role, uh, they do really good work. <laughs> I feel yep. like those things are created uh, or are, are related. And, um, uh, it's been really interesting because on our world building team, um, both Anne and Alex have uh, a street view. <laughs> they tend to think about the world primarily as standing within it and what do their eyes see, uh, which is a great compliment to Victory. You're extremely you know character focused uh, form of of writing and creating, whereas I tend to like. I start with like, how is the standard model of physics 
different in this world? Is there quantum mini worlds? Is there not? Are we going to assume like one variation of string theory or super string theory or M theory is the dominant physics? Would the standard model work as an abbreviate, uh, uh, an impartial theory of everything? Okay, what additional particles are there? in the standard model or in the string model. By the way, I'm not going to tell you what the physics are in this world because it would be a huge spoiler. Um, I think I'm the only person that knows that in the whole company. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that macrocosmological. And then, okay, well, now I've got physics. How did we get planets? How often do planets form? How common are stars? Is light speed the same? Is, is you know, like all, all these questions have to be answered. And then so forth and so forth. Um, and so because of that approach, me starting on the world before anyone else uh, joined us, uh, you know, I was working on plate tectonics, continents, and the migration of people groups across the continent in geological time, <laughs> uh, and then created a, a 3,000 world language called Runja. By the way, Vesser is uh, Runja for the good nest. That's the name of their planet. If you understood about the Runja people, then you would know why they tend to think of things as nests. But, um, you know, I had this full language before I'd ever thought, hey, what does a door look like? If someone's going to walk <laughs> through a door, well, I was like, well, gosh, I never thought about doors. I thought about, like, the transit network for goods and services between cities, but uh, never a door. That, that's something that I think is really cool about the dynamic that we have going right now is yeah. because there there's this intersection of three different people with views building the world together and then bringing that to the whole team. But there's also the additional layer of, as Mike mentioned before, like the storytelling being grounded in some of the ideas with like tabletop role-playing games and like the intersection of, you know, knowing the biology and everything for the world but then also game mechanics start to, to to influence it as a storytelling role and art starts to influence things and our, our game designer is actually uh also has a degree in architecture and and there's just this interesting mix of like push and pull with different parts of of like mike scott you know what what does the planet look like what does life on the planet look like and how does it move and then you you sprinkle in game mechanics too, and that that kind of starts to form, you know, an outline that you can build up from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually is a perfect segue to my question, which is, um, Mike, maybe you can talk a little bit about how our approach, um, from a storytelling perspective, like people might be thinking, like, well, what does plate tectonics have to do with playing a game? Um, like, why should I care about climate maps? Uh, you know, what does this have to do if, you know, if I'm reading a, a book that's connected to the game, I would love for you to talk a little bit about why this approach ends up, uh, enhancing the storytelling capabilities across all forms of media. Yeah. So kind of strangely, you know, I got my start, I started in the tech industry that for a while, about 10 years. Then I did the ad business for about 10 years. Uh, then I decided I was going to be an author podcaster for not quite 10 years. I'm old. And uh, so I, I don't have any background or pedigree in film and television. Uh, 
Um, and then because of like my science expertise and science communication, I started getting pulled into film and television franchises to kind of figure out how the science worked. And then in a lot of stories, the science was so foundational to like plot <laughs> and character development that I was invited to speak into those things as well. And in that process, uh, I had a set of assumptions about how information might be managed in large-scale productions, and those assumptions were very, very wrong. Uh, there are things called story Bibles or world Bibles, which are almost stream of consciousness, not terribly well-organized mind dumps uh, from maybe a writer, maybe a producer, uh, maybe an intern <laughs> kind of collated this material. Uh, it is not indexed. It is not searchable. It does not have any metadata, uh, or at least poorly formed metadata that references when things happen in what IP across properties. Um, like what scene did this happen? You know? Uh, and so I noticed in a lot of major, major franchises, and I'm talking multiple, basically almost everyone I've ever worked with, like when they got stumped about a thing, they would go look at fandom.com and see what fans said happened to figure out what happened in their own IP. And I was like blown away how much lower the quality of information resources was to support writers in film and television when compared to the materials that support game masters in tabletop role-playing gaming. I was like, if you gave a writer a TTRPG source book about the world and the characters in the world, it would be easier for them to write because I don't, I don't blame anyone, by the way, this is all inertia, but when writers have a story beat they're trying to do, I need Captain Galactica to do something amazing right now for this moment of character development. And so I have, and then there's this, I've had to create this great um, antagonist who's here to destroy the cosmos. So I need, because Captain Galactica is finally facing his feelings of abandonment, I need him to just shoot beams of light brighter than the sun and burn the skin off of, you know, the mega antagonist. And it can be emotional and moving in that moment, but then people walk out of the theater and they go, wait. Why didn't he do that earlier? Or we come back for a sequel and Captain Galactica's back, but now he can't start out that powerful, so he's got to get like humbled and and the audience gets it ruins people's suspension of disbelief because people are more sophisticated, have access to more information. I we lose the ability to follow the story because we understand why could Captain Galactica could do that that one time. But never again. There's no story justification for that moment. It's just what the writer needed to tell a story. And so uh, the approach here is to blend basically uh, digital asset management, like in the IT sense with metadata, with TTRPG-style uh, sourcebook documentation to uh, gather easily accessible information about everything in the world. So if Captain Galactica was in our world, Captain Galactica would have a stat block. 
meaning there'd be a set of mechanics that describe how you play Captain Galactica in a game. But then on that same block, we're gathering the things writers need to know, uh, like psychological things, backstory things, and yeah, the scope of their abilities. And if you need a cool one-time thing, here are the story justifications to do that. And more importantly, here's the potential cost to Captain Galactica for even, I've made that name up. Hopefully it's not a thing that exists. Uh, uh, The cost for him trying that, right? Because there needs to be a cost. There needs to be some risk. Uh, It can't just be like, well, I I started glowing and now I won the fight easily because audiences hate that. Uh, So that's kind of the approach is bringing in, yeah, there's some really good things to learn from traditional screenwriting and novel writing about how to catalog information. There's arguably some better things uh, from TTRPG spaces, and then there's some amazing things uh, from uh, you know information architecture and, and information cataloging and metadata that can make it really easy to look at a character and see what has this character done in every piece of media we've ever released. And what excites me also, what has happened with this character when the audience has encountered them in a TTRPG setting mm-hmm. so that, you know, Captain Galactica's interaction uh, with, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the lunar fisherman. Uh, and, <laughs> but then also, you know, Jane from Idaho when she was playing her character in the game. One, one thing, and this is, I feel like this is going to be a role reversal here because you went character and I'm about to take, take the world side here. One, one thing I think that is cool and, and very important about setting up the foundations of the world itself, like how, how emanation affects, you know, things on a cellular level and how weather works and stuff like that is because it makes it so much easier. And we, we've already experienced this a little bit as we sort of flesh out the world. But it makes it so much easier to continue new stories. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like a video game, you know, when you start out and you've got like a little bit of the map and the rest is like fog. Mm-hmm. And you don't you don't know how to fill that in. And it's it's difficult if that's completely a blank to fill it in in a way that's cohesive and makes sense and creates storylines that can kind of continue in harmony with each other. And, and so fleshing those things out beforehand allows for, say, like game development to go on and figure out, okay, here's what adventures look like in this world. Here's what's going on here. But also, um, if, you're, if you're writing a book, to, to go into another area of the world completely and, and still be working from the same framework. And, and so you're, you're able to create more stories that feel... One, one, like they've come from a real place instead of, you know, just a storybook sketch of something that could exist, mm-hmm. but also feel like they come from the same place together and, and kind of create that overlap of narrative media that Mike was talking about earlier that we're, we're really hoping to see with Vesser. Thank you both so much for sharing all of that. So my last question to kind of wrap this all up is uh, for, for people who are just starting to be introduced to the world of Vesser. They've never seen any of the images before. They've not heard about the world or the story. Uh, Mike, what would you say to kind of a new person 
uh, who's starting to listen to this podcast and, and interested and just trying to wrap their mind around what we're doing. Like about the setting? I would say if they're going to be following us on social media and um, and listening to our podcast, like we're going to be talking about the process of world building. We're going to be talking about, you know, everything from doorknobs to three species and ancient history of this world. But like for someone who's just coming in and, and, and wanting to get hooked in by something, what do you feel like is like a, a first timer's few nuggets of information that you would want them to know? Oh, well, I guess there's a few front doors if you're interested. Speaking of doors. Yeah, speaking of doors. <laughs> you know, we're working towards uh, the imminent launch of a uh, TTRPG web series where people are going to be exploring this world from a, you know, first-person perspective uh, and then playing that out at a table. Uh, it's going to be really, really fun. Um, so we've got a show coming about that. If you watch the show... And you're a TTRPG gamer, or you can kind of want to try TTRPG games for the first time, uh, you will be able to download the game version of what happens on the show. So you could make your own uh, emergent person, um, uh, your own character to play uh, in this world if you watch that show and, and, and you can play along with what you see on the show. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, yeah, you get the behind the scenes uh, view. So that'd be great if you become a super fan of the world investor and the exile game and uh, all the other things we're creating, you'll hear here, here first, anything we're coming up with and how we came up with it. But also this might be fun if you're just into writing or world building or game design, because we're going to be giving you, uh, to my understanding, a behind the scenes look at um, everything we're doing to, turn an idea into IP that people experience out in the world, entertainment. Um, if we're, you know, well, why should I care about the world of Esther? Well, I don't know if you should or not. But if you have ever really been interested in the question of like, what if magic was real? What would that look like? We've created a setting where because magic is real, there are people, emergent people, who have like superhero level powers. And they're terrified of going outside because the things out there are so much bigger and so much scarier than even these very powerful people. So how does society come together in the face of constant existential danger to survive and thrive and live lives of meaning? I don't imagine anyone in 2023 could relate to that. Absolutely not. Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, so if you keep listening, you're going to hear all about, you know, like we mentioned, we have three different species, each one, you know, one one is human, and then we have two other non-human species that, uh, so cool. If, you, if you're into fashion, we'll be talking about the clothing. Obviously, you know, we, we've got a lot of science involved here, so there's going to be a little bit of everything in the upcoming episodes. I mean, it might be fun uh, next episode, just to give you some context, just yeah. kind of take them through the the basics of the world, one, two, three, mm -hmm. a, a brief history of the planet of Vesser. There you go. That's what you can look forward to on episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. To find out more about what we're doing, you can visit Vesser.com, which is spelled V-E-S-S-E-R.com. Uh, you can sign up for our private beta list. And we cannot wait to share more with you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. 
See you next time. Pafoa Arasu. Thank you.